0: Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, deputy editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and today we'll be talking about Licorice Pizza and the sound and vision of its writer-director, Paul Thomas Anderson. Over the last few weeks, I've interviewed a bunch of PTA's longtime collaborators, including gaffer-turned co-cinematographer Michael Bauman, the film's uh, two supervising sound editors, slash re-recording mixers, Christopher Scarabasio and David Accord, and costume designer Mark Bridges. These are people who have been working with PTA for at least a decade, but in some cases like Bridges all the way back to the beginning with Heart eight. And what we talked about was not only the making of this new film, but Anderson's creative process and the unique way he approaches filmmaking. You know, like the Deep dive podcast we did on Succession and Watchmen last year, this could be a little bit different and I hope you enjoy it. And support for this podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios and United Artists releasings No Time to Die. Daniel Craig concludes his five-film portrayal of James Bond in No Time to Die. Joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents, Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. You can watch No Time to Die everywhere you rent movies, and it's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. Michael Bauman is one of the most sought after gaffers working in movies today. And that role of being the DP's principal lighting technician was one he played on PTA's films like the master, but when Anderson decided to start shooting his films himself, he elevated Mike to be his co-cinematographer. When I talked to Mike four years ago about Phantom Thread, one of the things we discussed was the year long testing process he did with PTA to figure out how to get that very specific, dirty, grainy texture Anderson wanted for Phantom Thread. And talking about Licorice with Mike, that your prep was just as important in part to figure out it's the film's kind of like distinct 70s look. But it was also driven by Anderson wanting to work with Licorice's first time actors, Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim, as he'll discuss here.
1: With the cast, he wanted to obviously just keep working with them on performance and make sure that I think for him, you know, this is this is a big even for him. This is a big bite. I mean, you're taking two people who haven't acted how can they do what's the chemistry like all that stuff and um it's funny because we did the first test like I don't know it was probably a year before maybe a year before we started shooting with COVID and everything and um I remember one of the one of the guys on the team or one of our electricians who's done tons of movies with Paul he's like he says to me he's like I don't know if this is gonna work man I don't, I'm not you know I'm like okay and then like six months later we're doing another test and he's like wow they've really gotten better you know and, and I mean so it's, it was you're definitely evolving it. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at tiny toes?
0: I hate working at tiny toes.
1: You should start your own business. <laughs> what business should I be in? I don't know, what do you
0: like? I don't know.
1: When you look at some of those movies that were done during that period, I mean, we we're talking about American graffiti and you know, Manhattan is a beautifully photographed movie. I mean it's like considered like, you know, one of these Gordon Willis' like masterpieces. Um, but there was a bunch of other kind of like, um, you know, you look at like what Shampoo is and, and some of these other films in that time and just like what they were, what the rawness was, what could you, what does that aesthetic look like? How do you duplicate that? Because our technologies, even on the film side, have gotten so much better. The film stocks are much more responsive. They have much more dynamic range. how do you How do you kind of step away from that a bit and embrace, you know, because, like, on Phantom Thread, it was the same thing. It was like, look, we could have gone in and made that movie look like, and I, and I think we were talking about this, like, he was like, I don't want it to look like The Crown, which is gorgeously photographed, amazing work, but it, it looks very polished, and this was like, how do we not have that polished experience? And this is the same thing here to a little bit. It's like, how do you how do you really get the the feel of that? A lot of the, the tests and kind of creating, like, this... What does the 70s look like? You know, Dan Sasaki, who's the lens guru at Panavision, he and Paul have a long relationship, you know, and Dan is constantly in the back. You know, I mean, he's just got, I don't know, probably thousands of pieces of glass that he just kind of can cobble together lenses based off of specific characteristics you're looking for. So this one is really about, you know, like, uh, getting a, a textured image but in a different, in, in a different bent. So it really starts a lot with the lenses. And, you know, so Paul and, and Dan work on different lens combinations and you know and then in the course of these tests like when we we did tests to just see performance you know between the two of them because obviously this is the first time really acting and so we did a series of tests with them but at the same time it's like oh let's try this lens and take a look what that looks like let's try this lens i'm just going into the geek details here yeah um we had the uh c series you know uh the anamorphic c series which is like you know from the i think it's from the 70s uh eric brown is really the historian of all this stuff the first ac but um you know but it allows us flares a classic like 70s anamorphic flare which is which is all throughout the film um on top of that there's this um series of lenses that gordon willis used to use in the 70s that we've used on i don't know i think we used them from the master on there were always some form of them were playing in the um in the film and so these are uh, they've got a degraded front coating so they have a very warm look to them so a lot of times on a lens package you'll have you know okay i got a an 18 a 24 a 50 a 35 a 50 well we would have like multiple 50s or multiple of different multiples of different types of millimeter lenses and that's just basically because of the different looks they could give so you know paul has his own lenses of a few lenses of his own he's got this path a uh, fifty millimeter path a that Dan will convert to spherical or anamorphic, depending on what the needs are for the film and so um and that has some interesting characteristics and looks to it also, and so that's another element to it but the but the flare thing was really something that we would we would play with and if you didn't want as much flare, okay, well, let's put this lens on same millimeter but less flare and um so that was kind of like a lot of the the tests and kind of creating like this. What does the 70s look like, you know, and how does this movie feel like the 70s? And so we'd look at it from the lens side. And then we were also doing a lot of tests to see what it looked like from the lighting side. Like for Night Exterior, for example, we wouldn't light the backgrounds. And we would just kind of let what's happening happen. And this is all really kind of one of the big um, visual inspirations for the film was American Graffiti. You know, it's a 50-year-old movie way back in the day. uh, They didn't have any money. Uh, And so we kind of embraced just sort of that rawness to it and kind of what that was and the performances are so good you really just go along for the ride and this was like on the night exterior stuff you know normally you'd be like all right we're gonna look down you know at the beginning of the movie when the scene where he's giving her um where he asked for her phone number if i asked for your phone number would you give it to me
0: why should i give you my phone number
1: so i can call you i don't know gary why not how are you going to remember it? It's only seven numbers. Well, there were two shots that were really specifically looking for inspiration on that. One was from the movie Manhattan, where they're doing walk and talks on that Woody Allen film. And it's literally just somebody holding a light over the camera and walking. And, um, and then that mixed with the American graffiti thing where when they turn in that shot and they're looking down the street, all you see is car headlights. Like normally, you'd be like, all right, let's get a condor back there. Let's get a light coming out. Let's light up the street a bit. Let's get some practicals. We were just kind of embracing that aesthetic of it, which is generally with digital. Of course, we're shooting film, but generally with digital, you would just naturally inherently see a lot more deeper back there. But that wasn't really. It was all about keeping, you know, really uh, what the in, what was happening with them, you know, and so uh, and embracing kind of that rawness of the, like that seventies feel. And so that was a lot of what the te- the original tests were. Seven five eight
0: four six eight six. Seven five six four six what eight six. Got wrong. Seven five
1: eight four six eight six. All right, Don Rickles. It's definitely an environment where you can try some different stuff and see what works. And how is this? You know, I I don't know. It, it was one thing that was very liberating about the film was the fact that it could look. We had a lot of leeway in how it looks. We didn't have. You know sometimes when you're dealing with actors who are more established you know people the audience expects them to look a certain way um you know you have to address certain things about their faces as far as lighting and things like that and those are all that's just part of what the nature of the business is at times um but with this one he was about you know rawness was a good thing like got pimples she has you know bags and things like that and it was really a discussion like how much of this do we embrace how much of this are we going to kind of gloss over and it was just like embrace it all and that was um that's just different because it's not what a lot of people do you know visually it's it's really like make everybody look as great as possible you know beautiful soft side light this would be like you know like when we're doing the car stuff like for example all the car work in that thing like when they're going to see mary uh mary grady and um driving along um you know and she's like oh yeah I can do that tell me you know and he's like whatever he says whatever she asked for you say you can do she said you can ride a horse you ride a horse and then you know so when they're driving there I mean that was literally just strap the camera to the side of the car and let her drive down Reseda Boulevard most of the time you're gonna put the car on a on a trailer you know you're gonna tow it you're gonna have it all lit and controlled the exposure, the interior exposure the ex- into in, in exterior exposure are gonna be nice and balanced. And that was like, we, we had to make a decision. We made a decision, I was just like, we're gonna just embrace what this is and, and cut the, the good moments to it. And that's that's definitely like, again, it's pretty raw because like when we get done, when they leave Mary Grady's and, and he's like, you show your boobs to anybody in the world, but you're not gonna show them to me. You know, he's yelling at her about showing her boobs and she's looking at him and it's just going black on the left side of the face. But we couldn't put, you couldn't put anything, she's driving the car, she has to see there's live traffic going by. I mean, it's like, we had like two picture vehicles that were just you know, like next to them. So you're looking into something, if something passed, it looked like it was from the 60s, but everything else is just like people on a Sunday driving. That's definitely a situation that is like, you gotta embrace those kind of visuals because it's just not the kind of thing that's like, I mean, we're like, all right, let's diffuse the light, let's get the balance up, let's bring up the ambience. You're talking about the California sun, which is just, you know, 10 stops over blasting away. You just gotta wrap your arms around it and say, okay, this is cool. (laughs) The movie I did previous to this was uh, The Tragedy Macbeth, which is this, it was an amazing experience. And Bruno, Bruno's great, the DP, but it's a very sculpted, like precise. And that was like, that shit is out the window in this movie. So you had to kind of do a complete visual 180 and reprogram your brain to be like, oh yeah, we can, uh, yeah, come on, let that thing go. Let's go, let's get, the energy of the moment was what was driving the show.
0: That was co-cinematographer Michael Bauman talking about working with Paul Thomas Anderson on the look of licorice pizza. Now we're going to shift gears to discuss the film's sound with Christopher Scarabasio and David Accord, who share the credit of being the film's supervising sound editors slash re-recording mixers. The first voice you're going to hear here is Chris, who has been working with PTA dating back all the way to Punch Drug Love.
2: On almost all the movies that I've worked on of his, it's the one thing that I try and stress to everybody is it's not about finding a bunch of sounds. it's about finding the right sound. We're trying to create something that doesn't sound like this big, weighty, dense Hollywood movie. It's like a three-piece band versus a orchestra. You take those three instruments and you turn them up louder as opposed to creating a wall of sound.
3: Paul generally speaking likes I guess for lack of a better word a kind of an old school approach to a sound mix. I think he really appreciates the older mono mixes. I think that's the sort of thing he appreciates the idea of a highly focused mix that you would have to have with a mono mix or you don't have your modern five one seven one Atmos has so many speakers you can spread things around. Background's over here. Music's left and right over here. I put the dialogue with the middle and you know, something can fly overhead and land behind you or whatever. Paul is more laser focused on, you know, the center of the screen and, you know, now this is music a moment. Now now we're hearing effects. Now we're hearing dialogue. Very laser focused on not necessarily a clean mix, but like a, a focused mix. And for *Liquors Pizza, the movie takes place in the early 70s. I think that's a special era for Paul for filmmaking. And, and you know, in Hollywood in general, that was like the beginning of a lot of experimental film. And I think that Paul was probably heavily influenced by a lot of film of that era so a part of what we were going for was a film track that sounds maybe like it came out of that era as well
0: no. don't 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 yeah, don't with the thing will you stop with the big you I not too
4: good huh why is it every girl that comes around here is ugly <laughs> Has a boyfriend Here's the dazzling
1: beauty I've been searching
2: for all my life. Early on, he mentioned American Graffiti, which I love that track. And I think the movie still stands up and all that. We started early on thinking about how that should sound. Cars obviously play a big part in it, but also like how sounds float through the air. Like the music playing in different environments. That was something we definitely played around with and did a fair amount of Location recording with songs. It's called worldizing. It's basically playing things, whether it's music or dialogue or anything, through speakers and rooms and capturing that speaker and that room as an environment, as opposed to trying to replicate it on the stage. So we did a fair amount of that. This is
1: really
0: great. (laughs) Someone did their toes.
1: I did. Do I, like my I like them. I like them. I like them. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Really, big night. Please look great. Get a chance to
2: talk with Alana. When Gary's looking for Alana. They're both kind of searching each other out. And then they end up in the Pinball Palace. Each time we're in the Pinball Palace, it's playing a different song and we're in a different room. Sound of the music from the street and then going into the Pinball Palace and then having that environment take over. So that was a moment where we used three different types of recordings, different kind of miking setup. So we were just really trying to stay as naturalistic as possible and really keep the vibe of what the movie is all about. Ultimately, I'm trying to create a track that sounds like the perfect production track, and I always look at it like we are trying to make it sound as if when they were shooting, they picked up the perfect sound with the little pimples and things that maybe give it a little more character.
3: I think a lot of these things that, as sound people, we get focused on and want to get rid of are things like clothing rustle or some bump, bumps into a table There's something drops off screen or mic bump. Some of those things are the kinds of things that Paul falls in love with as part of the color of the track. And it becomes, for him, like the beauty of that moment as is what we've recorded on set. This is what happened. This is what we record. recorded. This is it.
0: No, 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 we ran out of gas. you have to push the truck.
2: What are you doing when the box trucks is kind of going on yeah. its own? Now, that's a good example of it sounding very naturalistic, but also very cinematic.
0: Get in.
2: There's no music during that section and we kind of use silence and and build. So it's a combination of, again, trying to sound like it happened on the day, but making it also cinematic in a way that brings
3: more drama to it. We have several layers of effects going on there. Tire rolls and like gravel under tires and the body of the truck rattling, interior truck, interior cab, interior back of the truck, all these things happening. And then we have all these little elements of rattle that maybe not necessarily tied to a specific thing, but it evokes a certain emotion, like a a tense rising rattle that kind of (laughs) happens. sequence is three or four minutes or whatever it is and it's just sound effects
2: it's always about keeping it story based it could have played like a big action hollywood film but that's part of the process of working with paul and andy
0: scene. And it's incredible sound work by David Accord and Christopher Scarabasio, who you were just listening to. Of all of PTA's longtime key collaborators, costume designer Mark Bridges goes back the furthest with Anderson's 1996 debut, Hard Eight. Here's Mark, who of course won the Oscar for Phantom Thread, talking about his collaboration with Anderson. Paul and I have a real easy back
4: and forth where he'll text me, you know, switch on TCM right now or, Every everything everything you need to know about the hair in the movie is found on the Brady Bunch, you know. It's like he he'll just he'll just text me and I'll be like, okay, cool, great. Here's here's a way in, you know. Um and and whatever it is, it might not even be dead on our period, but there's some feeling about it that lets me in on. movie that we're making i remember phantom thread you know i would go over to his studio and we would listen to music we would look at some film clips that he found we would look at books i think it depends on each project uh a, a lot of times his ideas for the music for the film inform what we're doing so much and and you see how much the music plays in licorice pizza But even, you know, Freddie Quell's theme in The Master informed it. So, you know, and then there's a back and forth where I find out what he's writing. And for There Will Be Blood, I remember he uh, said, I need, you know, I've written the script now. I need to know what my movie's going to look like. So I went and put together a lot of images in the chronological order of the script so that, you know, these are, possible Sunday family. These are possibly Daniel as a miner. This is possibly Daniel as an oil prospector, you know? And so he was able to see what that period looked like and how the film might put together. So it changes for each, each one. Um, And then of course on my end, I just immerse myself in whatever uh, period and just try to look at. With the belts, like the hair, how people wear their clothes, how tight, how loose, uh, what's interesting about that period, what looks contemporary, you know, that's how I work.
0: I'm cooler than you. Don't forget it.
1: I don't need you to tell me whether I'm cool or not, old lady. What was that? I said, lady." I said, what was my lady, my lady. I don't need you to tell me whether I'm
0: cool or not. You're not cool. your breath smells
4: to me clothing has a certain character and my goal was to just make each person have their own sort of distinct icon because there's so many interesting characters coming in and out of their lives that you just want like how do we you know what icon do we use for the girl in the wig store what icon do we use for you know the mother of the politician you know so that no there's no overlap everybody is their own distinct character maybe in the way sometimes Fellini is too where each person is kind of their own story
0: could you give an example of that as it in terms of that distinct icon as it in terms of one of the liquor's characters
4: well i think you might see it on the poster you know, with with the poster, they're all kind the cartoon poster that it is. There's they're all distinct, you know. Bill Holden character, Sean's character. There's he's the only one in the care in the movie practically that that sort of just wears a sport coat and trousers in the old gentleman school way. Um, you know, the politician has the has the broad tie of the moment of 1972 and patterned and the different width of lapels there's not a real crossover in the type of clothing that each of the characters wear even even alana's sisters sort of have uh their own thing one of them obviously doesn't work and stays at home and the one sister is Go has a job every day and ha- wears dresses and jewelry and things. So they're all distinct characters unto themselves. Even the friends, um, you know, there's only one or two guys that would wear shorts. The other guys only ever wear long pants, you know, you just try to try to be specific on characters by all those choices. And then, it's I, th- I actually think it's kind of easier to follow the story to who's who, you know, and 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 interesting, memorable characters as they come in and out of the film.
0: Listen, young lady, you don't bring this idiot to Shabbat dinner here. Listen, dad, he's an atheist and an actor and he's famous. But he's Jewish. He was going to take me out of here. Esty- don't you even look at me. Don't you even look at me. You're always oh. looking at me what are you doing say anything what are you doing what are you thinking
4: huh the back and forth happens there once i actually put clothing on an actor and paul will review it and and feel you know in his gut or how he imagined it or how he wrote it or in how he wants to play that scene whether which of the things that i'm presenting to him will probably work or he feels is sexy or interesting or whatever, you know, but I'm bringing these options to him on an actor. I also work with the actor too to talk about their character and how they play in the big picture. I'm kind of the ambassador for the director that respect. And so that's where the back and forth actually happens more heavily once we have an actor and we have clothes on them, I try to give him several options that I feel work within what I understand we're doing, and then he'll come back to me with,
1: why don't we go with this?
0: Where are your parents?
1: My mom works for me.
0: Oh, of course she does. Yes, she
1: does that in my public sense. relations company.
0: And your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent too.
4: That whole t-shirt thing that we did, is a come a long way baby t-shirt you know that she wears in the poster paul was like oh can we make a t-shirt she should have some t-shirts that have words on it which i don't really love because you're reading instead of looking at the actor's face so i made the shirt and it's really really tiny and paul really liked it because he goes it was great you can't read it and (laughs) and i was like oh okay good that's good (laughs) glad you like it since it was your idea and um you know he that's the kind of thing like he has an idea and i try to make it happen for him and it's very flattering when he likes it so much that he uses it as like a, a teaser poster or whatever i don't know it just we it's just that's how things go with us with filmmaking especially with paul you know one foot in front of the other. We just are putting it together
0: one step at a time. And support for this podcast came from MGM Studios and United Artists releasing's No Time to Die, produced by Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, and directed by Carrie Fukunaga. Daniel Craig concludes his five film portrayal of James Bond and no time to die, joining forces with his MI6 team and a new generation of agents. Bond faces the highest stakes of his espionage career and emotionally explores the sacrifices of heroism. Critics are hailing. No time to die will be remembered for its emotional impact above all. You can watch it everywhere. You rent movies. It's for your consideration in all categories, including best picture of the year. Join us next week when we talk to Maggie Gyllenhaal about her new Netflix Film, Lost Daughter with her editor on that film, the great Afonso Gonzalez.